I'm Sarah Samwell. This is Policy Talk. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. January was a tumultuous month for the U.S. We take a closer look with Professor Maxwell Cameron from the University of British Columbia. He specializes in comparative politics, constitutionalism, and political economy. He is also on the Executive Committee for the Center of Democratic Institutions. Take a listen. So I want to start off with getting your uh, reaction to what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. As someone who researches democracies, what was going through your mind? Well, I think the main thing that was going through my mind was how familiar this all seems to anyone who has studied the breakdown of democracy anywhere else in the world. And my own research focuses on Latin America in particular. Uh, For um, many years, I've been interested in uh, the phenomenon of presidential self-coups, which are situations in which the president decides to close Congress, suspend the Constitution, and rule by decree for a period of time Uh, often until a a referendum can be held that allows for constitutional reforms in order to enable uh, the president to be reelected. So it's really motivated in large measure by a desire to serve another term or to perpetuate uh, oneself in office. And I think that when I watched uh, what was happening in in Washington, it looked to me like there were elements of a self-coup, an unsuccessful one, but uh, nonetheless, an attempt, an unconstitutional alteration of the democratic uh, order by a sitting president uh, using uh, his office to try to influence by extra constitutional means the deliberations of the legislature to alter the outcome of a democratic election uh, to prevent certification of an election that would have led to his rival uh, being inaugurated in the hope that by uh, interrupting that process, uh, he could remain in office for another term. How that exactly would have worked out is a bit foggy. Uh, it's not clear to me what the what the sort of even medium term game plan was. But nonetheless, uh, by uh, instigating this insurrection in the Capitol, uh, I think what Trump was doing was clearly uh, unconstitutional, uh, clearly a threat to the country's uh, democratic um, procedures, norms, laws, um, the constitutional order. And so in that sense, I think it really was an, an attempted coup. So I'm very much in favor. It follows from that, obviously, uh, that he should be impeached and barred from running for office again. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this violence was pre-planned? Like, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how it kind of um, found itself moving online, but was there a kind of a pre-planned element to this, or was it just a reaction to what he said at the rally that morning? I think you point to one of the most interesting questions as we try to reconstruct what happened. I think it's gonna be really important, particularly uh, as the FBI proceeds with its investigations to try to understand better uh, the logic and mechanics of how these events unfolded. I mean, it does seem very clear that there was a lot of preparation that went into this, that many people across the United States were were gathering in the Capitol. They saw January the 6th as a significant date. Uh, They needed to be in Washington and Trump had convened them. Uh, Now, what he had in mind when he convened them 
and what, uh, what those who converged on the Capitol intended. It's not clear to me uh, how much commonality there is there, but clearly there were people in the, um, among those who were gathering, among those who wanted to disrupt these proceedings, clearly there was an intention to storm the Capitol. I mean, in effect, uh, there's no question in my mind that many, many people who gathered there, particularly the more uh, radicalized uh, right-wing fringe groups and white supremacists, they clearly went to Washington with the intention of disrupting uh, the, the Congress. Now, Trump, how much did he understand that? How much did he know about that? Is very is, is, is something that I think needs to be really carefully examined. It also needs to be really carefully examined why the security response was so ineffectual. And that then raises questions about the role, not only of the, um, of the, the Pentagon, uh, of the um, Capitol Police and uh, Metropolitan Police, uh, but also of, of veterans, uh, former servicemen and women, uh, and including active uh, members of the security services who were involved in this on both sides, both as uh, defenders um, and as attackers. And so I think that there's a very interesting story that needs to be fully reconstructed. I don't think we know the full dimensions of this, but as we learn more, um, the significance of this day, I think actually increases. That the more I learn, the more questions I have, and the more it begins to look to me as if indeed it was a relatively well-planned and orchestrated attack on US democracy by the president. Yes, I'm wondering, um, you know, what kind of role social media is playing in this, you know, the misinformation, you know, the uh, aggravation of the mistrust in institutions, but also uh, social media has this ability to redefine things as we see them, like, this is kind of redefining insurrection. So yes, it doesn't look like the classic insurrections we've seen in the past, but it may be a new form, as you were pointing to, this is a very significant event. So what role do you see that having social media and redefining what was happening that day? I think it's incredibly important. I think, first of all, just generally speaking, the way in which social media has transformed the media landscape, the way that we consume news and, and the way that that has made many people available to outlandish conspiracy theories that they believe uh, and, and then act on. Uh, that's a phenomenon that I think needs to be taken very seriously. But if you look at the people who actually died on Capitol Hill, if we take, there's five people, one of them, of course, police officer um, who, who died in the, in, the, in the course of his duties, but there were four attackers who also died. Every single one of them was deeply involved uh, with social media. They were QAnon conspiracy theory followers who themselves on social media were saying vile, despicable, violent things um, about, um, about the Democrats in particular. And they were clearly radicalized. And so I think that what we were seeing was social media as an instrument of radicalization. And, and what we know about radicalization suggests that there are a lot of people who could be radicalized or not, depending on circumstances. So for example, two of the people who were killed were actually Obama supporters uh, several years ago, and they had become radicalized by their exposure to social media. One of them talks about not being able to continue on Facebook and moving to Parler and not watching Fox News and moving to Newsmax because he didn't feel that he was getting the truth 
in what he regarded as these sort of news, new sites and, pl and platforms that were no longer giving him uh, the kind of conspiracy theories that he was actually looking for. One of the triggers of radicalization uh, it was the president's utterly baseless claims that the election was stolen. And I think it's really critical to emphasize that you can have people very angry, uh, you can have widespread grievances, you can have um, people getting frustrated with politics. Um, to some degree, that's normal. But when you say an election has been stolen, particularly in the context of uh, population that worries about so-called losing their country, I think you trigger something in people. And you know, the way I would put it is this, had the election in fact been stolen, then nothing that Trump did was really inappropriate, right? I mean, if an election's stolen, you should fight back. You should fight back in the courts, you should fight back in the media, and you should fight back in the streets. Uh, the problem is, of course, that there's no evidence whatsoever that the election was stolen. There was no conspiracy um, among um, Democrats or the deep state, or, or, or we don't even know who the conspirators were that, that, that denied the election to, to Donald Trump. Trump. And so that utterly baseless claim that the election was stolen, I think was the trigger that radicalized um, these followers. Now, how, how, how much did Trump know that it would? Well, he was preparing the groundwork for months before the election, as well as after the election. And of course, he had enablers in Congress. And I think that it was absolutely shameful the way in which important members of Congress, uh, Hawley and Cruz, for example, were um, playing along with those baseless claims. And even people like Mitch McConnell, who in the end did the right thing, nonetheless, humored the president, suggested that he had every right to pursue through the courts these allegations of fraud, even though he knew that they were baseless. And it was time for the Republicans to recognize that, to tell the truth to their own followers and to not allow the president to build up this reservoir of, of, of radicalized people. Now it's much of the Republican party that actually believes this false baseless allegation about a stolen election. Yeah, and just picking up on those Republicans, you know, many of them that night came out very strong, thinking specifically of Lindsey Graham, like, this is enough, we've had enough. And now they're, they seem to be backtreading um, and seem to be kind of walking that line again. Now that Trump's out of office, why are they doing this? Again and again, they've been shown the off-ramp. And again and again, they've looked at it and they've turned away. The impeachment process itself was an opportunity to make a clear break with extremism, fanaticalism, radicalism, what, the, what has become within the Republican Party, uh, an anti-system insurgent tendency, which Trump has really expressed more than anybody else. They had a chance to break with that and to return to being the party of Ronald Reagan, the party of uh, Abraham Lincoln, a party that you know, advocates for a particular agenda, but does it within the framework of the country's democratic rules and norms. They've been given that opportunity repeatedly. They're going to be given it again in the trial of Trump that'll happen in the Senate. There's every evidence, there's every reason to believe that they will lose that opportunity as well. And we've seen people like Lindsey Graham utterly shame, shamelessly. I mean, the, the the hypocrisy of that man is, is astonishing. Um, if you think about how he 
saw how destructive and toxic Trump was. And then when Trump won, did an about face and became one of his most ferocious defenders. And then when Trump led this assault on the Capitol, briefly broke ranks and then returned very quickly to Trump and now continues to be working with Trump and seemingly opposed to uh, this trial uh, and, and uh, opposed to the Republican party doing the right thing. And so I worry that if the, Rep the Republican party essentially faces an existential choice, they either have to make a clear break with Donald Trump and his anti-democratic politics, uh, in which case the party divides and Trump could very well create his own party, um, maybe the American Patriots party or something like that, um, which would then give you a divided right and ensure that the Democrats are in a strong position uh, for, the, for, for as long as the party remains divided, or um, they persist in trying to hold together um, uh, uh, an increasingly diminished number of truly democratic conservatives uh, with this uh, radical extremist anti-system uh, party that basically advocates for minority rule, which is what the Republicans have become. And neither of those futures is very promising for the Republicans, but what's more worrying is they're not very promising futures for the United States either. The United States is a country that has had democratic stability for most of its existence, thanks to the presence of two political parties, both of which committed one way or another to the system. Uh, if you kick out one of those pillars, uh, it's very hard to see how the country's democratic system can survive in its current form. And I think that what we're looking at in, in truth is that the United States has now become, it's joined the ranks of what I would characterize as defective democracies. It's no longer a fully democratic country. It's been some time now since it was clear that the United States as a democratic system was no longer an exemplar for other countries. It's no longer in rankings of democracy that are done routinely by a variety of organizations considered even among the top 10 or 20. Uh, it's, a, it's a very much an imperfect democracy. And in truth, it's always, always has been, but uh, I think it's suffered a very serious erosion. And I think now what we're looking at is a generational challenge uh, to restore this country to something like a functioning democracy is going to take many years. There's a few threads I want to pick up there, but the first one is, um, you know, this idea that they're eroding, they have been eroding for a while. Um, where do you place that on the timeline? Was it the election of Trump? Was it before then with the Tea Party? Where can we kind of locate where that started to happen? And what does that mean for the US who is still the global superpower? Sure. Well, I mean, in a way, you could go back to the Civil War, and the reconstruction and the failures of the Reconstruction era, uh, which then left a legacy that was picked up with the civil rights movement. And obviously that's fundamentally altered the political system in the United States since the 1960s. And in particular, the tradition of bipartisanship and the way in which Democrats and Republicans have represented the South in particular. Uh, but I think also important is the Ronald Reagan uh, neoliberal period uh, which is what we're living under today. And, and polarization in the United States closely tracks the growth of inequality. 
United States is a country that has seen growing separation between rich and poor, the top 1% pulling away from the rest. Most people's incomes essentially flatlining now for several decades. Uh, productivity has increased, but not wages. Wages have not uh, kept track with productivity. And we're even seeing, and this is alarming within the context of established democracies, we're even seeing a deterioration of life expectancy uh, as a result of what are often called deaths of despair, people dying from overdoses, overuse of painkillers, uh, depression, suicide, and so forth. And so I think that there's no question that neoliberalism, by causing inequality, by contributing to the sense of grievance of falling behind of the American dream, um, moving out of reach for many people, it's now become the United States is a much less mobile country than Europe or, or Canada. Um, and yet this was supposed to be the land of opportunity. So the, in the land of opportunity now, all of those opportunities are being hoarded by the top 1%, the top and, and beyond that, it's not just the top 1%, it really is in general, I would say it's the top um, 20%, the professional class, people with credentials, as Michael Sandel has been arguing in his book on the tyranny of merit. We're seeing a kind of separation between those who have credentials, professionals, and so forth, whose incomes have risen, and everybody else who, who have not experienced that, that kind of improvement and don't see much opportunity for social mobility, even though the myth of the country is everyone can get ahead who works hard and has, has the, uh, you know, the talent and the opportunity to do so. So I think that there's a, I think it's really um, a combination of civil rights, the civil rights movement, which goes back to the you know, exclusion of blacks and slavery. So it goes to the origin of the Republic and then the neoliberalism of the current era. And of course, Trump, the extraordinary thing about Trump is that he is the expression of all of this, which is instead of having rising inequality leading to the sort of kind of class, class conflict that you might expect, which you, which you, which you would have almost certainly if you had a, a labor party in the United States, um, you, it's expressed in the, this form of right-wing populism. And, and just uh, should also note the, the collapse of the union movement in the United States. I think that's also another important factor in explaining why it is that we don't have um, a, a progressive party in effect channeling uh, these demands for social mobility and social justice and racial justice, which could in fact stabilize the country. Yeah, so are we due for a reshuffling of global power then? If they're internally still trying to grapple with what the Trump presidency has kind of churned up. Yes, I mean, are, are, you're, are you asking what this means for the United States position in the world? Yeah, and our, you know, we have Russia and China waiting in the wings, as well as other countries who want yeah. to kind of see themselves as global superpowers. So the US has been this mono superpower for at least 30 years since the fall of the Soviet Union. So are we due for another reshuffle, I guess? <laughs> yes, and I think that's, I think that's right. I think um, part of what is um, of concern to me is the way in which uh, we are seeing both the um, uh, rise of um, quasi-democratic or hybrid regimes. We're seeing many countries that are sort of straddling this gray zone between democracy uh, and, and, and authoritarianism. Um, you see that in Turkey, Hungary, Hungary Poland, Venezuela. Um, but you also see the growing assertiveness of non-democratic regimes like Russia and China meddling in elections in the United States and elsewhere. 
um, and presenting themselves as a, as a more credible alternative, right, as, as more functional uh, political systems. And then to have our most well-established democracies uh, stumbling, having difficulty dealing with um, the problem of right-wing extremism, nativism. Uh, we see this both in the United States and, and in the United Kingdom. Uh, that's very worrisome. So the panorama, I think, in terms of the kind of democratic world that we need that has historically underpinned liberal international open institutions, th th this is all very much, I think, uh, being thrown into, into question. So I think it is a, a very dangerous moment globally, uh, and, and it's a very dangerous moment uh, for uh, a country like Canada, which has historically benefited from uh, multilateral institutions and its commitment to, to maintaining um, a kind of a global uh, system uh, based on um, liberal principles. Yeah, and at the same time, we're seeing kind of these rise of non-state actors, you know, whether they be terrorist organizations or other groups, but I'm thinking specifically of the QAnon phenomenon, this anonymous non-state actor being able to influence the biggest democracy in the world. Like that is quite something. So what kind of threat is that? And what does that mean going forward for democracies, this kind of invisible, literally invisible threat? We don't know who Q is. Um, if there are even a real person, we don't know. <laughs> but yet they're able to mobilize so many people and you know, make something like a January 6th happen. Yeah, I know. I think it's really very interesting. And, and you have to, I think, step back and put it into a broader historical uh, and comparative perspective. I, uh, several years ago, I, I wrote a book called Strong Constitutions in which I tried to explore the rise of constitutionalism by um, examining the ways in which uh, text is used to coordinate collective action. And so my argument was that we get the origins of constitutional government with the uh, spread of, of, of literacy, of reading and writing. Um, the first great comparativist to study constitutions was Aristotle because he had access to um, 140 uh, Hellenic constitutions that he could sit down and read and compare. Uh, and he drew from that a series of important inferences that uh, continue to be relevant to our understanding of politics to this day. So, so just having reading and writing meant that you could have a text. And if you had literacy, you have access to that text. And that allowed us to do things like begin to think about how we might um, agree upon common rules and organize ourselves now on a, on a new scale um, and, and over periods of time much greater than ever before. And then with the Gutenberg press and the, the rise of, of, um, um, of mass literacy uh, with the print um, medium, uh, broadsheets created that reported on parliamentary debates. And so what happened in parliament now was no longer just a bunch of nobles giving advice to the monarch. It was debates about whether to go to war, raise taxes and important issues like that, that then spread across the, uh, the, the entire nation state now, now being substantial units often with millions of, of, of members. Uh, and that created something called public opinion. And the force of public opinion was something that was astonishing to people um, in the 17th and 18th and 19th century. 
um, it, it sort of leads to uh, great fear about what can happen with, with public opinion in the 20th century. And then we have the, of course, in the 19th century and 20th centuries, the, the electronic revolution, beginning with um, the telegraph and radio, and then uh, television, uh, the internet, and so forth. And Harold Innes, the great um, theorist of social communications, argued that new technologies of communication have a tendency to create new monopolies of power and knowledge. And then as they spread, uh, those technologies can have a democratizing effect. And so you can see that with literacy, it, it first reinforced centralized power, but then as more people became literate, it created demands for access to, to, to political institutions. You saw that in Republican Rome, and then likewise with um, parliamentary democracies emerging out of um, the spread of, of, of uh, printed material. Today, I think what we're seeing is uh, both the construction of new monopolies. I think that the platforms are an example of that, the degree to which they have now uh, managed to control what we consume and through these complicated algorithms to direct our attention uh, in ways that we're not often even aware of uh, and, and thereby set the political agenda. Um, often, I think quite un, un, unintentionally in terms of the political consequences, these political consequences frequently backfire, but it's done to generate enormous profits. The amount of revenue that goes to Facebook and advertising you know, has, has, is starving the rest of the media landscape. And so there's this construction of powerful monopolies but then as that technology spreads and you get microblogging, you know, you begin to get people on Facebook and Twitter and so forth, and they can now add content. Now we're living in this world in which the traditional gatekeepers and agenda setters uh, are no longer there. We no longer get up in the morning and open the newspaper and read the things that some editorial board somewhere has decided is significant and relevant and credible and, and trustworthy. We're now just looking at what anybody thinks is important if they can manage to get our, our attention. And so I think that that's having a transformative effect on, a, on our collective consciousness, to use uh, the phrase that, that Durkheim talked about. Um, and it's making governance very, very difficult, both nationally and globally. Yeah, I think we often don't think about just what a monumental invention the internet was and is and how we're still living in the ripples of that, those early days. So it, there is a lot to consider, I think, for, new, for democracies. And I would imagine that <laughs> we're gonna see a lot of change over the next few years. But I just wanna circle back to the US and you know, we have impeachment coming up. We're recording this before the second impeachment trial, as well as the Biden-Harris administration has just come in. So we're in this kind of waiting moment to see what will happen. So first, I want to pick up on the impeachment. Uh, you know, you talked earlier about the potential of the party splitting. Do you see that happening? And how do you think impeach the second impeachment trial will play into that? Uh, it's a real challenge for Biden, of course, because he comes into office in the peak of the second and let's hope the worst moment of this pandemic uh, with over 400,000 deaths, 420 as we speak, um, the possibility of another 100,000 just in the next several weeks. And he has to get a grip on that. Uh, he has huge governance challenges. He's been left um, with a state of disarray in a variety of his portfolios that he needs to fill. He needs to 
uh, have his nominees approved um, and construct his cabinet and so forth. So he's got a big agenda. And then on top of that, uh, to be dealing with uh, Donald Trump and the legacy of his disastrous uh, end of, of term. Uh, and I think that he has to um, let, let the Congress sort out the Congress's business. And he's been wise to, to try to stay as much as possible above the fray. I don't think it's, it, it's good for Biden himself to be seen to be in any way directing that process that has to be directed by leadership within the Congress and the House and the Senate. Um, and they, by the same token, don't want this to get in the way of his completing his agenda. He does, of course, have now control over the Senate, the House, as well as the presidency. That's extraordinarily important, even though the margin is the narrowest possible margin. Uh, and so I think that it's going to be very important uh, uh, for, for um, uh, Biden to uh, have both the chance to form his government, but also to pursue the, the, the case against uh, against Trump. And I, you know, uh, what's the what's the likely Republican response? I mean, so far, what we're seeing is that they are um, not making a break with Trump in the way in which they really uh, they really need to do. And that's concerning. Now, the, 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 the one of the challenges, I think, for the Democrats is how how to how to enact a commitment to bipartisanship, a willingness to compromise, a desire to get away from the politics of polarization and radicalization, to be willing to work with people who can work with the government. Um, and Biden, of course, is the in some ways um, uniquely suited to do this. He has a long history in Congress and in the Senate in particular. He knows how it works. He can he can make deals. He's, he's good at that sort of thing. And so part of the purpose of, I think, of the Democratic Party selecting Biden uh, and part of the wisdom of that selection was that he does represent a sharp break with Trump's uh, intransigence, his unwillingness to appeal beyond his base, his, his lack of interest in anything that wasn't to his own immediate political advantage. However, when you're dealing with a party like the Republicans, how do you balance that desire for compromise and bipartisanship with realism about who the Republicans are and not falling into the trap that Democrats so typically do, which is to say that we can, we can cave to the Republicans in the hope of denying them um, issues that we then take on as our own. And then what happens is the Democratic Party moves farther and farther to the right, abandoning its own base, which is what is exactly enabled Trump. So I think the really critical thing that Biden has to do is go after the people who should be supporters of the Democratic Party, who are currently supporting the Republicans and ask, why is it that ordinary working people in the heartland or in the South support a party that gives massive tax breaks to the rich and does nothing to advance their own interests, but just pray, but just manipulates their grievances and uses them instrumentally for their own partisan ends. How can the Democrats win those people back, not win the Republicans back? Stop trying, stop imagining that somehow you can persuade Republicans to come back to the Democratic Party, but do try to get that base that Trump was so good at capturing and bring it back to the Democratic Party. 
and keep the Republicans off balance in the Senate and, and in the House. And I think the whole issue around um, these complicated debates that we're going to get into around reconciliation and the filibuster and so forth really speak to this to this moment that the the Democrats cannot allow themselves to be held hostage by Mitch McConnell and to be unable to implement their agenda because if they fail to do that if they fail to demonstrate that that being in power enables them to do things that are going to make people's lives easier for those who either support the Democratic Party or those who should support the Democratic Party but have grown alienated from it. If they cannot make that case, then in two years time the Republicans will retake control um, of the of the Senate and and you know they could take control of the House and and then Biden's a lame duck and we're back into a, just an ab absolutely miserable situation. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point about trying to reach out to that group that Trump was able to um, tap into that nobody really seems to have been able to tap into before. Yet, at the same time, this is the same group that is progressively getting more radicalized, right? So how do you reach out to this very, rad you know, potentially radicalized group, while at the same time trying to balance your own party's expectations of the progressives who are not willing to talk? to those people. You know, the Democratic Party has often been called the coalition party, right? Because there are so many different groups and interests they have to balance. But that seems like very two polar opposites. And I, I'm wondering if that even that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, and I guess I would say that uh, I think it may be the case that once you've gone down a, a path of, of radicalization, it's very hard to, to, to wind that back. Uh, and there may be people who, for all intents and purposes, uh, are, are beyond uh, dialogue, beyond our ability to bring back into something like um, a, a civic culture, um, to, to set aside the extremist rhetoric, the hateful, violent rhetoric. And, to be willing to listen and to um, have empathy for others and um, um, and and make common cause with others. To say, but 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 I think we can. What we can take away from this is many of these people, as I said earlier, who have become radicalized, were Obama supporters, you know, eight years ago. And so it's not that these are evil people. It's not that they're terrible people. Um, there there certainly are terrible people out there. Um, you know, extremist white supremacists and so forth. But uh, a lot of the people who've been drawn to, to Trump aren't necessarily of that, of that ilk. And I think it's important to appeal to those people on the basis of values that are shared, um, common values that are important, uh, that of course have been used in different ways, but, but, but which nonetheless potentially I think could form the basis of a national conversation. And I would say examples of this would be the idea of the, the American dream, how to restore the belief uh, and the reality um, that if you work hard, you can get ahead. Now, unfortunately, to do that is not a simple matter. It will take a reorientation of economic policy. I think there has to be an acknowledgement that the growth of inequality is unacceptable. Uh, and there has to be an effort made to, um, to, to move away from 
cutting taxes on the rich to raising taxes uh, on, on the rich, um, breaking up the, the mon monopolies of the, the platforms, um, promoting a broader civic conversation about um, national priorities, getting people back on board with the use of science and evidence and policymaking, particularly um, around, the, around the pandemic. I mean, there are a variety of things that already Biden is doing with the way that he talks to the public, with the kinds of people he's appointed that are going to lower the temperature. Um, you still are gonna have Fox News and you're still gonna have the crazies out there. But I think if you can overall lower the temper and engage people in a, in a conversation that goes to their values, um, it's not a matter of, we, we know that just sort of pointing to facts and, and science is not gonna be enough, right? That, that, that never changes people's or doesn't always change people's minds. Um, things like climate change, right? We've had decades of denial of climate change funded by the oil industry. And, and I think that's, that's created the, almost a kind of paradigm for how you prevent positive social change from, from happening. And I think there needs to be an effort uh, to push back against that kind of denialism, whether it's in, around climate change or whether it's around vaccines or, or other things and restore a sense that, um, that um, decisions around what to do for the country have to be made on the basis of both uh, an understanding of what science tells us and an understanding of, of what, what experts have to offer, but also the exercise of judgment on behalf of the community as a whole, as, a, as opposed to what we've seen in recent years. And that is a kind of, um, um, again, to, to, to cite or to quote um, Michael Sandel, a kind of technocratic hubris, a kind of a, a view that you know, and this goes back really to the end of the Cold War. You think about Francis Fukuyama and his claim that, you know, we now know liberal democracies can resolve all existing contradictions in society and we've reached the end of history. And that kind of nonsense coupled with um, a, a belief that somehow uh, neoliberal policies that we just free, free up markets and cut taxes and deregulate and we'll have growth and all other problems can be solved if we have high rates of economic growth. All of that nonsense uh, which actually does come out of, in part, out of our, not just out of, um, you know, right-wing think tanks, um, but, but actually has, has there, there are a lot of people who've been complicit with that nonsense. A lot of, you know, good liberals and a lot of good professionals. Um, and I think we really need to, 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 to tell ourselves some home truths about, about this. For those of us, for example, in the university, people in the civil service and so forth, we've got to really push back against the idea that, that politics is simply a matter of management and, and, and good technique and place values back at the heart of our, of our civic discourse. Um, and, and, and that's something that, you know, the, the Democratic Party has to learn to do. And it's lost that ability because it's bought into decades of this rhetoric of we have to compete and win. And you still hear that in the Biden administration, right? It's like, let's be competitive. So we need to promote um, you know, growth and jobs and uh, give people educational opportunities and everybody, everybody will rise. Um, and, and, and I think that that, that rhetoric um, is, is deeply problematic um, uh, because it, it steers us away from asking the fundamental moral questions that are at the heart of, of what 
what Trumpism is, is all about. What kind of country do we want? What kind of country do, do people in the United States want to, to live in? Is it a country based on um, multiculturalism and inclusion? Or is it, a, is, it a, is it a country that's based on a narrow um, nativist conception of, of who is an American citizen? What does it mean to be a, a citizen in, in the United States today? I think that's a vital question that has to be addressed. Yeah, definitely a, a very consequential moment after a very challenging month for the US. So I'm wondering as a concluding thought, if you can just kind of tell us what to look out for. We're in this moment of, you know, the looming impeachment trial, a second impeachment trial, which is historic, as well as Biden's 100 days, first 100 days, and the raging pandemic. We There's a lot going on. So what should we be watching out for that maybe we didn't address in this conversation? Mm. Well, you're right. It's a complicated chessboard that uh, the Biden is, is, is playing on for sure. Uh, certainly we'll be watching to see, um, watching very closely uh, what the Republicans do in the context of the trial and how they treat Donald Trump and whether they continue uh, to follow him off the cliff or whether we begin to see people um, resisting that and pushing back. And of course, it'll only be a couple of years before the midterm elections come up. And I think one of the things that motivates people to not break ranks with Trump is they fear uh, being primaried. That is to say, they fear challenges to them in the primaries. And so we're gonna have to watch and see how the different factions within the Republican party uh, gear up for those primaries and, and and do they just continue down this path? And if they do, I think, again, that's going to be very, uh, very destructive. We also need to look um, and watch closely for signs of, uh, of a dissent within the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party has its own challenges. Um, it's a, it's a, at this point, a party that encompasses very, very different visions of, um, of, um, of, of the country. And, and so uh, the stability of the party system, um, do we see the emergence of a new party or new parties? Um, how do these different groups work uh, within the framework of the, the, the legislative institutions of, of the country? Um, does Biden have the capacity to navigate all of this? Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, I guess a hopeful scenario would be um, that they, that the trial offers an opportunity for clarification of what happened on January the 6th. And that if, if the Republicans don't use that moment to definitively break with Trump, which it seems they're unlikely to, will this nonetheless be a kind of a reckoning for them uh, uh, that will provide a margin of, of accountability, particularly as we see the investigations that will be ongoing, not only into Trump, but also into the followers who stormed the Capitol. And so there's gonna be a lot that we will learn, I think, that will help us to understand what actually happened in January the 6th. And retaining the memory of that, I think is critically important. One of the, we started this conversation talking about uh, the experiences of the democratic uh, breakdown of democracy in other countries. And one of the things that I continuously think about um, based on what I observed in Peru where a president closed Congress, suspended the constitution, and then began a period of rule by decree and changed the constitution and ultimately became a dictator. When he uh, ultimately resigned, 
he fled the country and then returned and was imprisoned. And his daughter has led his, his party, the, the Fujimorista party, Keiko Fujimori. The thing that's interesting is that this party emerged as a powerful political force in Peru. And yet it's also a toxic political force. The entire rest of the political class, all of the other political parties and tendencies within the country have tended to unite to prevent the Fujimoristas from taking power. And so they have, they've been un, un, unable, even though they're the, clearly the strongest party and often win up to close to 50% of the vote, they cannot take the presidency. And I think that what that tells you is that the body politic has developed antibodies against this authoritarian tendency within the political system. Will this happen to the Republicans? Are we gonna to start to see in the United States the construction of a kind of a, a common sense that says, one thing we can't allow to have happen is Republicans to get power. That's just too dangerous. We saw what happened with Trump. Had he won a second term, imagine what would have happened. This is a white supremacist party. This is a nativist party. This is a radical anti-system party. It cannot be allowed to take back the presidency. I could very well imagine, even if the Democrats lost control of the legislature, I could see an election in 2024 where the issue is, do you let these people back into power because you remember what they did? And it could very well be that even though the Republicans retain a degree of unity and retain, uh, and even with the leadership of Trump or someone like Trump, they may have trouble winning elections because there will have formed this consensus within the country that says they are unreconstructed, illiberal, anti-democratic people, and they can't be allowed to come back into office because if they do, it's the end of democracy. So that's a that's something that I think should worry the Republicans, right? Even if they're not ready to break with Trump right now, they better worry about the construction of a kind of an underlying kind of consensus in the country. This could be the fundamental cleavage going forward, which is pro-democracy, pro-democratic, anti-democracy, Republican. If that's the way that politics is framed from the perspective of those outside of the Republican party, and if that becomes a powerful narrative, the Republicans are really in trouble. So, so and I, I, I hope that that's not the case. I would like to see the Republicans return to a commitment to democracy, return to a commitment to constitutionalism um, and respect for um, the um, you know, free and fair elections and so forth. Um, that, that would be a much better outcome. But I fear that we're going to move into something that looks a little bit like the post-authoritarian politics of countries like Peru. Wow, a lot to think about there. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Good to talk with you, Sarah. Thanks for having me on your podcast. This podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. To see more of our content, go to iAffairsCanada.com. I'm your host, Sarah Samuel. See you next time.